on today's episode. Lucid dreaming. A dreamed ping pong match leads to scientific discovery. And we delve into the true nature of consciousness. Again. Oh, is this not is this not NPR? <laughs> <laughs> I would say I'm definitely most interested in the worthless areas. Yeah. What's my thesis? What's my thesis? What's my thesis? Welcome to What's My Thesis. I'm Seth Lauer. And this is Javier Proenza. We're Los Angeles-based artists who meet every week to share the answers we found to the questions we have. Join us as we explore and expand our worldviews through research and ask, what's my thesis? You've never gone WebMD. <laughs> no. You keep looking at I, my hairline. I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just looking up because I'm trying to think, but okay. you... <laughs> Actually, you just did a lean where I was like, oh, you look like 23-year-old me. <laughs> oh, that's that's getting better. You said 29-year-old you. Oh, well, I was being generous <laughs> because we're on air. Okay. I've been told to have a great radio face. <laughs> well, it's getting much bigger. <laughs> Longer. <laughs> uh, when, there was, when I was in my 20s, it was obviously very hard to lose my hair. Um, and I remember there was this one guy who already had like, was gone. His hairline was already gone. And one time we were hanging out and we were having beers and he just looked at me and he was smiling. He was like, you're losing your hair. <laughs> and I was like, you insensitive dick. <laughs> and I feel like this dynamic, like I get to be that guy now. Cause okay. I just lost it so much longer ago and I don't yeah. have all the, uh, social norms yeah. And I just like, oh my God, let's talk about Captain Picard. Jean-Luc Picard may pave the way for bald men because before that it was all hair loss as a eunuch manifestation. Right. Like I think that, that culturally <laughs> until Jean-Luc Picard was the captain of the Starship Enterprise. It might be the opposite where, you know, overabundance of testosterone or something could actually indicate... Uh, you sound like my uncle when I was first losing my hair, trying to comfort me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll leave it there. Yeah. Um, Do you ever, like, look at a man with a hairy back and go, damn, dude, that's a manly man? Uh, funny you should ask, no, but I have been told... Well, that's a t manifestation of testosterone as well. Yeah, see, I don't, I don't have that, but... Um... I've been told the back hair that I do have, which is like the size of a quarter, um, is really sexy. And <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking, I wish I had known when I was in middle school, that would be my best selling point. The fact this, that you don't have back hair? <laughs> this quarter size patch of back hair. Like, oh, that that was going to be like the that seductive was be, thing? Yeah. I wouldn't have worried so much if I had known that was the key. Well, I, when I was like growing up in the in the nineties, my mom, I think, <laughs> used to tell me like, 
oh, it's okay. Because, dude, I'm Harry. Like, straight up. <laughs> where where it's like, um, too much. <laughs> <laughs> there is no crime that I could get away with. <laughs> because I would just be leaving genetic material. I'd just sweep the house. <laughs> and it's amazing how much, like, trace evidence I leave behind. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, my mom when I was a kid was like, oh yeah, but in the eighties it was like real sexy with Don Johnson. I was like, well, that what the fuck does that help me? Don Johnson, I know who he is, but he was the the, the yeah the her example of like the hairy, hairy guys. Really? Huh. I think we've established <laughs> that we should talk about hair at some point on this <laughs> podcast. I mean, we are now, but as a topic, as a as an actual topic, come back to it. Okay, but yeah, let's take a break. It wasn't all fun. (laughs) All right. When I was 17, I heard about lucid dreaming, which is my topic today. I heard about, like, I was talking to my friend Colin, like, hey, have you seen this? Like, he was one of the stoners that was, like, in the upper, he was a senior when we were, like, younger. Um, And I was like, hey, have you seen this guy? And he was like, yeah, he's gotten into lucid dreaming. I was like, what's that? And so it got me into the topic and I ended up going to Barnes and Noble and I got two books and getting ready for this episode, I did a a non-neutral internet search and found that there is a lot of information from a variety of sources about lucid dreaming, but we're going to go back to the, the, the original books, which I have right here and they're both right here. They're both right next to me, Seth. <laughs> it's your fault for making me re-record this episode. <laughs> that I didn't prepare the books. I, we have not like openly addressed the fact that this is a re-record. Yeah. And I'm being so passive-aggressive, even though I've told you it's okay. It's uh, I've been resisting the urge to say the lost episode and the best episode ever. Yeah. But well, by, by the way, have you used that expression non-neutral internet search so many times that you just drop it like it's nothing no it's written right here okay (laughs) (laughs) but you just last time you just glanced over it so there will be new material for you to 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 leech off of here and and make comedy gold from all right so uh and there's definitely a lot of information on this topic but we're gonna go back to the original guy and uh steven laberge is his name I am still not sure about pronouncing his name, but I figured he never says it when I see his videos, so that's kind of on him. Yeah. Or I just haven't come to the part in the video where he says <laughs> it while I skim through it. But he's a pioneer of lucid dreaming. I, you know, there's that meme on Reddit: "Don't make fun of people that mispronounce words because they've only read them." So, Mr. LeBurge, I apologize. I've only read your name from your book as a paying customer. I love your nonverbal like reactions because it just sounds like I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to put myself in the position of the listener and <laughs> <laughs> and you're already bored. I'm like, do I want to interrupt this or just let it let it go? <laughs> All right. Oh, yeah. No, out to dry is your <laughs> your bit here. Yeah. Okay. 
So he's the pioneer of lucid dreaming as far as I'm concerned, and uh, he's definitely a pioneer of oneirology. But before we get into lucid dreaming, it helps to know what oneirology is. Wikipedia says, oneirology is the scientific study of dreams. Current research seeks correlations between dreaming and current knowledge about the functions of the brain as well as understanding how the brain works during dreaming as it pertains to memory formation and mental disorders. The study of oneirology can be distinguished from dream interpretation, which is hack shit, in that the aim is to quantitatively study the process of dreams instead of analyzing the meaning behind them. Now, let me backtrack because one time, not all dream interpretation is bullshit, but a lot of it is. <laughs> I'm going to relate a story of when I was describing a weird feeling that I had on my thumb. I'm not even going to get into the dream. But like I had a dream where I had a weird thing happening with my thumb and I tried to get it off of my thumb and it went to my other thumb and then it went to my dick. <laughs> we will cut this out, I'm sure. But... I told that to a therapist. This is like TMI <laughs> left and right. And he was like, oh, yeah, your thumbs are phallus, uh, phallics. <laughs> he said, el fallo, because he was an Italian <laughs> doctor. But, but it was like, yeah, of course, that makes sense. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah. And then he called you a figo. <laughs> <laughs> Which may have ended up on an episode. I'm not sure. So. <laughs> yeah, okay. Which means... A fig, but it also means a vagina. <laughs> and when you call someone a fig, it means you're really cool. Say un figo. This area of research, oneirology, has been around since the 19th century. But that's it for Wikipedia today. The main source of this episode is going to be our man, Laberge, whose name I've only ever read. That's such a good way. Oh, my God. How come, like, the dollop doesn't do that shit? <laughs> Just, like, disclaimer, I'm smart. I've only read her. I've, I'm, I've been reading. By the way, if you ever get his phone number, you need to save it in your phone with that exact description. LaBerge? LaBerge, whose name I've only read. <laughs> Hopefully, if we're on a phone calling basis, <laughs> there's going to be a little bit more banter. <laughs> it's just such a great moniker. A cell phone moniker. Yeah. <laughs> Under last names. Yeah. The book was published in 1985. It's called Lucid Dreaming, The Power of Being Awake and Aware in Your Dreams. Again, lots of direct quotes here with me interpreting them for you so that you can understand. That's good. I need that. Yeah. In 1952, Eugene Azarinsky a graduate student working under Nathaniel Kleitman at the University of Chicago. We got to call out the Germans, man. As a graduate student working under Nathaniel Kleitman, Eugene Azarinsky made a serendipitous observation while studying the sleep patterns of infants. Azarinsky noticed that periods of eye movement and other indications of activity seem to alternate regularly with periods of comparatively quiet sleep. These recurring periods of rapid eye movement, or REM, could easily be observed by means of electrodes taped to the subject's eyes. This is called an electrooculogram, or EOG. Using EOG, they were able to determine that most vivid dreams take place during REM sleep, while dreams occur a fifth as often in non-REM sleep. 
Though Azarinsky discovered it, however, it was William C. Dement or Dement. Dement or Dement? I would go with Dement. Dement. Well, he's working with the mind, so... It's not Cecil B. Demented? No, I know. Maybe that's why I say it. Azarinsky discovered it, but William C. Dement was the one who coined the term REM. Dement also studied under Kleitman. His pioneering work discovered many of the basic characteristics of REM dreams. He also provided the first indirect proof of a correlation between actual time and dream time and showed that there is a link between a dreamer's physical eye movements and the direction of their dream gaze. The suggestion that REMs are the result of the dreamer looking about in their dreams has since generated considerable controversy. Controversy. Pronunciation of that word is very controversial. <laughs> yes. La Berge, or how I also might have thought it was pronounced when I was 17, La Berge. <laughs> <laughs> and his famous eggs. <laughs> we were in the same place. Uh, he then poses the question, why did the study of dreaming become scientifically respectable? I mean, it was all bullshit dream interpretation. Unless we get into that very private story <laughs> that I told. Wait, but okay. So, like, what's the timeline comparison to Freud? Did Freud sort of like? Uh, You've done this episode before, and you know this shit is nowhere. No, you know what's coming, and you know specifically <laughs> that I have not fucking touched Freud. Why are you doing this to me? <laughs> <laughs> My memory's uh, not that good, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Please continue. (laughs) Why did the study of dreaming become scientifically respectable? He says it was thanks to a paper by John Stoiva, Joe Kimia, Joe Kim, yeah, Joe Kimia. Okay, so he says it was thanks to a paper by these two guys entitled Electrophysiological Studies of Dreaming as the Prototype of a New Strategy in the Study of Consciousness. They propose using electrophysiological measurements with subjective reports. According to them, this is an instance of converging operations in which the agreement of objective measures and the subjective reports provided a degree of validation for hypothetical, because not publicly observable, mental state. So basically, they they don't have all the data that they really, really want to make completely effective study in terms of the way that the scientific method is typically done. Since the subject's report is the most direct account available concerning his mental processes, scientists would naturally like to use it. However, there is a problem. Heraticus called the senses bat witnesses, and of these bat witnesses, the introspective sense seems to be the most unreliable, which is why most people are completely lacking in self-awareness because the introspective sense is very much not uh, scientifically viable. The introspective sense has more to do with faith and religion and... It's hard. It's harder to shape it and measure it. Yeah, exactly. It's more. But in this sense, they're trying to reconcile the science with the fact that you have this data that you want to use, but you have to use it with a caveat. Uh, and but it's that doesn't negate its effectiveness entirely. 
So, um, given that the only eyewitness to dreaming is the introspective sense, we need a means of corroborating its testimony. Concurrent physiological measurements could sometimes provide the necessary circumstantial evidence to validate the subjective report. So that's what they're, they're, they're basically taking someone, which also in law is a case where you can't rely on witness testimony entirely because it's malleable. It's easy to manipulate. Are you making sure we recorded this episode? Sorry, I'm just making sure. <laughs> <laughs> you motherfucker, you better. Took you a while. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. It's recording. So then... Using this this sort of rigor, they established the requirements for scoring these measurements, and they're laid out in a manual of standardized terminology, techniques, and scoring systems for sleep stages of human subjects. According to the manual, standard sleep stage scoring requires the simultaneous recording of three parameters. Brain waves, which is recorded on EEGs, eye movements, which we've already covered EOGs, uh... And then muscle tension, which is EMGs. And here's a fun fact that I learned from the book. Polygraphs are tracings in ink of several channels of physiological data on a continuously moving strip of paper. When a subject spends the night at a dream laboratory, (laughs) there was some controversy (laughs) over how I (laughs) read laboratory versus pronounced it when I was in conversation. On the missing what episode. What was the witty banter I had in, in response to that? Oh, it was great, but... Can you... You're the one with I the bad memory. I can't remember what it was. <laughs> <laughs> can you tell me what funny thing I said last time? <laughs> you should just say it, because I don't remember. I don't know. <laughs> I just li- love the, like, the you're pimping me out on, like, a third degree. You're like, tell the, everybody how funny I was. <laughs> um, there is another yeah, mispronounced so, word. So, Sorry. anyway... When a subject spends a night in a dream laboratory, the polygraph machine uses up to over a thousand feet of paper. The book was published in 1985, and at the time, he had nearly 900 recorded lucid dreams since 1977. So that's about... Let's not do math. You guys could do it at home. 1985 to 1977. Don't you dare, Seth, make them work for it. Eight years. (laughs) Fucker. (laughs) Uh, uh, I did roll on the SATs. I'm sorry, I just stopped. Yeah, saying. and your wife I'm is still rotting. Is is who we rely on for tips yeah, <laughs> for, yeah, for, yeah. for for tip calculation. And though it has a strong scientific background, it is found in the self help section, and the cover is a bit new agey. These books are hella yellow, dude. Oh yeah, they're falling apart. So exploring the there's two books exploring the world of lucid dreaming, which is not going to be covered in this. And that was say that second name. It was Stephen Leberge, a Rheingold. Rheingold. Howard. I'm angry at you. Okay. He's angry he didn't get a PhD. In that context. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because Mr. Leberge is the PhD here. So, how would you describe? There's an eye. There's a little window, and it's definitely a window because it has like a sort of. It's more of like a frame. But it's, it doesn't have... Uh, it has like a base relief kind of uh, shading type thing where it looks yeah. dimensional. And then and it's got a, a sky, a starry sky. Can you recognize nice any constellations there? I don't think so. 
<clears throat> they did a good job. No, I think that is something. Is that the dipper? I feel like that's um, crab nebula or something. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'm glad you feel that way. <laughs> okay. I'll tell you one thing. That's a freaking eyeball. Yeah. Sure. There's definitely a floating eye. And I love, I just like, I think that's a trope of not just new agey stuff, but like, like, um, entry level artists, <laughs> not to shit on people. Cause Hey, we didn't have taste when we started. We, we sort of had to work through it, yeah. but I think that eyes being the, the key to the soul they're there, they have a little the bit, window. the window. Um, see, see how non-layman I am. <laughs> I'm too advanced for, for this art conversation. And then the, the other book has some clouds with some, with a silhouette, inverted silhouette of a man's face. Very, kind of like a bionic man. Yeah, and then there's like a motion blur. Anyway, that is a you very gotta blue it, eye. This is this is a very much a get past the covers. Don't judge it by the covers because the content is actually pretty um, pretty interesting. Uh, because I'm doing an episode on it. <laughs> it is definitely written from the perspective of personal growth, but it's not obnoxiously preachy. I recommend it. So all the science comes from the book, and that's really what was gripping to me when I was a kid because it is not just this new agey thing. It is what has facilitated oneirology. Before we get into some of the more interesting scientific stuff, uh, let's get into why you should get into lucid dreaming at all. Being awake in your dreams provides the opportunity for unique and compelling adventure, rarely suppressed elsewhere in life. Yet adventure may prove to be the least important of a variety of reasons you might find it rewarding to cultivate the skill of lucid dreaming. For example, lucid dreaming has considerable potential for promoting personal growth and self-development, enhancing self-confidence, improving mental and physical health, facilitating creative problem-solving, and helping you to progress on the path to self-mastery. Does Are that, you the master of your own? Well, the self-mastery angle sort of reminds me a little bit of um, the Isaiah Berlin episode where self-mastery uh, becomes self-abnegation, where it becomes a uh, tool for tyranny. <laughs> so... It likes it it, it. it it's all these terms are interesting when they come up again in different contexts. So, the suggestion that lucid dreaming could improve the quality of your life applies to both your everyday and every night life. Now I'm reading it in a more mocking tone because I've read it before <laughs> and I and I know it's coming, and I'm not like what like ever wins them. Well, I'm trying new characters. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever wisdom you acquire in your lucid dreams seems to remain at your disposal to help you live your waking life. Moreover, the reverse is equally true. You can remember the lessons you have learned in your waking life in your lucid dreams. Unfortunately, neither is usually the case for the ordinary dreamer who experiences a lack of connection between dreams and waking life. Now, typically... 
No, I'm lucid dreamers. <laughs> Suffer from a state-specific form of amnesia, so that while awake, they remember dreams only with difficulty, and while asleep, they recall their waking lives through a carnival mirror, darkly and distortedly, or not at all. Why should it matter whether we live two lives or one? And Leberge, or Leberge, offers an analogy where on the odd days of the month, you can't remember the even days and ask, would this be so bad? So imagine if you can't remember. It's not that hard. <laughs> <laughs> the episode you last recorded. <laughs> so it wouldn't be that bad? I can't even remember what kind of mochi I ate yesterday. Was most likely red beans, Seth. <laughs> I mean, that's not, that's those are context clues. <laughs> okay, um, in his view, anyone interested in personal growth needs to dive into the insights found in their dreams, and to get the full benefit of the dream state, you just need to be lucid in your dreams, dude. There's just no way around it. And that's a direct quote. <laughs> he says, <"Dude." laughs> uh, So another application of lucid dreaming that LaBerge celebrates is as a tool for creative problem solving and decision making, which may be how I came to it as an artist. I don't know. We'll have to read the rest of this to see <laughs> if such a bold statement. <laughs> okay, can I just say it's, it, there, it seems like there are overlaps with TM. A little bit, maybe. That's like when you have... Transcendental meditation. Oh, I thought it was tinnitus. <laughs> I know what TM is, dude. <laughs> I'm a big Deepak Chopra. <laughs> <laughs> I think David Lynch may have tinnitus, actually. But uh, Oh, is that where I made the convergence? Yeah, shouts and, uh, yeah. yeah. But, oh, I thought that was just a choice that he made as an actor. Well, yeah, I think it is, but... There was Go on. Else. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, TM. That's just because, or meditation in general, that this can help you with your daily. Your smile. <laughs> I just. <laughs> with your daily I'm, waking I, life. I am thinking about going off on this entire tangent that will derail everything and maybe might have to do, might be relevant to the bitterness i feel towards <laughs> evan wentz <laughs> but when i was eight years old my dad used to make me do transcendental med meditation really yes <laughs> this will cut we don't have to go in detail about it now because <laughs> but yes my dad used to wake up at like four in the fucking morning and meditate for at least three hours before going to work and it was this like crazy thing where you would walk out at like you know because i was at, anybody with hormones knows about insomnia when you're like a teenager and so like your sleep schedule's all off and so i would just like end up and and i would see my dad like in these crazy meditative positions that were not normal for a kid to see um and then yeah and i spent i've had some good times with meditation but as a discipline for an eight-year-old boy, it's very tough. Huh. So that's why you pretended not to know what TM means at first. Yes. Because <laughs> I was just like, it's like, 
in conversation and I'm like, I'll let that go. <laughs> but then I realized this is my fucking podcast too. <laughs> okay. Well, it seems like we may, we may have hit it. this. Yeah. We'll, ha- we'll revisit this. Like we're revi- we'll revisit your si- your strong and silent type. Okay. <laughs> so we won't revisit this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. In the course of history, dreams have frequently been credited as an important source of creativity in a wide range of human endeavors, including literature, science, engineering, painting, music, cinema, and even sports. Among scientists, we may cite 19th century German chemist Friedrich August Kaku? <laughs> Question mark? Kaku? Uh, I don't think a German name has ever said with <laughs> has ever been said with less authority. <laughs> His dream discovery of the structure of the benzene molecule. Do you know what benzene is? No. I think we did this last time. We'll skip it. And uh, Otto Loewy's dream inspired experiment demonstrating the chemical mediation of nervous impulses, which won him the Nobel Prize for physiology in 1938 so i would love to have a dream that helped me win a nobel prize in physiology in 1938 specifically that dream would have to be the creation of a time travel device and then i'd show up and be like hey everybody i'm free look at this iphone (laughs) (laughs) our our stand situation is terrible Uh um you should right. just show up in 1930 and be like, <laughs> Dust Bowl, <laughs> just show check up in, out this iPhone. <laughs> just show up in 1930 and be like, we're still insecure. <laughs> we're losing our hair. <laughs> All right. In the field of engineering, there are several instances of innovations revealed in dreams, including Elias Howe's sewing machine, which started the, which was, well, it didn't start, but it was pretty a big part of the industrial revolution so thank you for that buddy children working in factories and all that all a dream painters like william blake and paul klee which are very obvious composers like mozart beethoven wagner tartini and saint Sainz have credited dreams as a source of inspiration and we're going to get into an area of your expertise which is uh, movies like The Shape of Water. Okay. <laughs> That's different we'll, from last time. <laughs> we'll have to talk about that. In a, we'll do a... a, yeah, a it'll be its own thing. Yeah. Because, <laughs> goddamn, I've never laughed so hard. Anyway, I'm curious to hear about what you think about the dream-inspired films that Mr. LaBerge cites. Do you remember any of these? You know what? I I thought to myself at one point, oh, we lost that episode. I should go back and and research um, Resnai. Yeah. A little. So bit you more. did. You do. You do remember. I, the names. I've seen that film a couple times, and I I remember things about it, but um, I don't remember it having to do with dreams. I just remember it had to do with memory. Please. Yeah, it was inspired by dreams, okay. but it wasn't necessarily about dreams. So his uh, last year of. At Marionbed? Yeah. Oh, over here it says of, but it's at Marionbed? Yeah. Okay. Igmar Bergen, Bergman's Hour of the Wolf? Um, I believe the joke I made last time. 
<laughs> <laughs> Nothing is better for comedy <laughs> than than removing yourself from the joke with time. <laughs> that's just to make sure I know. That's the Bergman film that's has really moody characters going through emotional crises. You're telling me like I know <laughs> what the fuck I'm talking about. <laughs> okay. Go on. And uh, Judith Guest's screenplay of Ordinary People, which I am familiar with by title, but I have not. Uh... Anyway. Nor have I. Lastly, and this is exciting because remember, this is a, this is, these are the chapters of the book that are trying to entice you to read the rest of the book or buy the book if you're skimming through the intro. And so lastly, he notes that golfer Jack Nikolaus claims to have made a discovery in a dream that improved his game by 10 strokes overnight. I'm going to just start reading exclamation points like in association <laughs> with the word and fuck the rest of the sentence. Uh, your cats will appreciate it. <laughs> but that's kind of cool. Imagine having a dream and all of a sudden you're like 10 strokes better at sex. LaBerge is excited about this. Up until now, we've had little or no control over the occurrence of creative dreams. But at this point, it seems well within the realm of possibility that the fantastic and heretofore unruly creativity of the dream state might be brought within our conscious control by means of lucid dreaming. And most of our dreams, our inner eye of reflection is shut and we sleep within our sleep. He makes the point that lucid dreamers are asleep by definition because they have no sensory contact with the physical world, yet they are also awake in that they are consciously interacting with the inner worlds of their dreams. In general terms, you are acting consciously if you know what you are doing while you are doing it and are able to spell it out explicitly. So if you can say to yourself while dreaming that what I am doing just now is dreaming, you are in fact conscious. Most of our behavior, whether waking or dreaming, is relatively unconscious, because consciousness is limited. We tend to be less conscious than we could be, and this is because paying attention requires mental effort. Under most ordinary circumstances, our lives are so predictably arranged that unconscious habits are adequate to get us where we want to go. Consciousness confers the same advantages on the dream state as it does on the waking state. While awake, in your dreams, you are in a unique position to respond creatively to the unexpected situations you can encounter there. So, basically, it's like he's saying that it's not a surprise that we're not lucid in dreams because we're rarely lucid in real life. Mm -hmm. And we'll get into it in a second, but one of the things that helps you become, helps you achieve or get to a place where you're lucid dreaming regularly is to try to become more conscious in your regular life. So as a whole, I think that that's a pretty, we're still in the um, him advocating for why you would want to adopt the discipline required to mm -hmm. become a lucid dreamer. And just to be clear, he he's not suggesting the use of any drugs to assist. Oh no, this is all about doing a lot of LSD. Oh, it is. Yeah. Okay. No. <laughs> no. This is this this is all about staying. Just it's all about consciousness, and that's sort of what it becomes interesting about it. Is 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 you get more into 
what is consciousness because you can have consciousness while you're asleep. So what does it really mean to be conscious? Anyway, lucid dreamers can usually recall any particular plans they may have previously made regarding what they would like to do in their dreams. This opens up a whole new approach to scientific study of dreams and consciousness, as will be described shortly. And we will get into that because that's more the scientific end of this book that, though it is in the self-help section, it is really kind of an interesting read. Kind of. No, it's a genuinely interesting read that has stuck with me since I was 17, and I'm doing it a, an episode on it now. So I definitely, this is not one of the people we shit on on this podcast. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> I'm getting defensive because I don't want you to say bad things about Mr. LeBerge. Hey. <laughs> Mr. LeBerge. <clears throat> so I'm sure we can both relate to the experience of waking up in a bad mood over a dream that you can't quite remember or waking up in a good mood for the same reasons. He says that part of that is because when you are not lucid in a dream, you perceive yourself as being contained in the dream world. Non-lucid dreamers are sentenced to a virtual prison with walls no less impenetrable for the fact that they are made of delusion. And again, it's a scientific read, but it's not a dry read. Like, I, I do... It was nice to go back and read the book again and be like, oh, I am actually compelled <laughs> to read this again. Um, but do you are you compelled at all to try lucid dreaming again? Yeah, I just need the discipline, yeah. <laughs> which we both know I'm working on. But you've had it in the past and you think that was... When I was 17, yeah. <laughs> well, specifically the discipline, but also you think having lucid dreams, a few I think you had, right? Yeah, I've had, I've had, and not just, not just when I was doing it, like it's been a recurring thing in my life. And I think for a lot of people's, a lot of people have the experience of lucid dreaming and they don't necessarily know how to recreate it. But, um, I mean, going back to TM, it probably would help you lucid dream. But right now we're still talking about a little bit about what lucid dreaming's contribution to oneirology has been, or neurology has been. So in contrast, lucid dreamers realize that they themselves contain and thus transcend the entire dream world and all of its contents because they know that their imaginations have created the dream. So the transition to lucidity turns the dreamer's world upside down. Thus, they freely pass through dream prison walls that only seemed impenetrable and venture forth into the larger world of the mind. Yeah, you know, like rereading this and uh, for the recording, there are a bunch of sentences that end in ways that I like them. (laughs) That I'm like, oh yeah, this is why I enjoy the book. They no longer identify with the part they're playing. They are in the dream, but not altogether of it. This detached but not uninterested frame of mind allows them to confront otherwise fearful nightmares and anxieties. And by resolving inner conflicts, Further psychological development towards self-integration and inner harmony. Those are themes that come up a lot, I think, on the show. Self-integration and inner harmony. They are, in fact, but I was just going to, I was going to save this, but I'll probably forget, so I might as well say it now. In my episode, Mm -hmm. I always try to talk about my episode during your episode. (laughs) It's all good. We're Uh, both narcissists. What was I going to say? We're compassionate narcissists. 
the the thing that you just said there's um (laughs) (laughs) there's okay so there's something very similar um should i read it again okay being in the dream there but in it but not of it right yeah that exact phrase is used in my episode in in society but not of it or in life but not of it i mean come on that's our that's who we are so he describes an experience in relation to being of the dream and not part of it where he became lucid in a dream where a barbarian had him hopelessly locked in his iron grip as soon as i realized the struggle was a dream i knew as a matter of principle the conflict was within myself it was clear that this repulsive barbarian was a dream personification of something I wanted to deny and set myself apart from. Perhaps it was merely a representation of someone or some quality in another that I disliked. I knew that the way to inner harmony lay in accepting whatever I might find in myself, even the odious barbarian, as part of myself. My experience has shown me that In the dream world, at least, the best and perhaps only ultimately effective way to bring hate and conflict to an end was to love my enemies as myself. At this point, he acknowledges that all the personal growth talk is about the possible uses and benefits of lucid dreaming, benefits that it can have on society. But there's really only one use for lucid dreaming that has been somewhat established, and that is as a tool for scientific research on the psychophysiological nature of the dream state, which provides a model for a powerful approach to research on human consciousness as well. And this is the stuff, the scientific stuff that's really the meat of the book and the the exciting stuff. So let's get into the research he did at Stanford University at their sleep laboratory. We've used uh, lucid dreaming as a tool to study mind-body relationships. For the first time in history, we have been able to receive on-the-scene reports from the dream world as dream events happen. At Stanford and elsewhere, lucid dreamers in laboratories have been able to signal to observers while remaining physiologically asleep. Such messages from the dream world prove beyond any reasonable doubt that lucid dreaming normally occurs exclusively in the rapid eye movement or REM stage of sleep. This remarkable brain state has also been called paradoxical sleep since the late 1950s, when experiments revealed it to be a much more active state than the traditional view of sleep as a passive condition of withdrawal would allow. The active REM periods normally last 10 to 30 minutes and occur every 60 to 90 minutes throughout the night about four or five times per night. They alternate cyclically with relatively quiet phases of sleep, referred to as non-REM sleep. Experiments have shown that during REM sleep, everybody dreams, every night, whether they remember it or not. During REM, your dreaming brain will in most cases be considerably more active than it is right now. Right now. Your brain, as, as you're staring off <laughs> into the distance pondering <laughs> pondering some other shit like that wait a second like You're like saying... the like the uh <laughs> did, did you say more active than right now yes right was, now your brain is absolutely not active <laughs> i'm not stimulating as much as your dreams are anyway the proven fact of lucid dreaming and it is a proven fact and i love that term 
because this book was written in 1985 and I think we covered we we talked about this in our last recording of it the idea of scientifically proven <laughs> and like in the 90s it was all over television especially scientifically proven proven yeah. to work yeah. all of those things and you would have your again I didn't hang out with 40 year olds when I was uh, in my <laughs> in my teens but among teens, it was like, oh, it's scientifically proven. <laughs> and to was, promote hair growth. Yes. In most cases. Oh, absolutely. No, I fucking bailed off of that very quickly. I was like, these motherfuckers want me to pay $16, $60 every month for Propecia, and they don't want to cure it. Motherfuckers. That's how much it is, 16 a month? Uh, at the time. Okay. With inflation. (laughs) (laughs) It's snake oil, Seth. Don't do it. Don't do it. Empower yourself. Don't let society tell you what your hair should look like. Go bald like me and be sexy. Oh, you sound like Larry David. (laughs) Anyway, going back to the sentence that I didn't finish, which is all of them. The proven fact of lucid dreaming effectively challenges a number of conventionally held misconceptions about dreaming, consciousness, and reality. The false premise seems to be the presumption linking dreaming more closely to imagination than to perception. How do you feel about that sentence? Wait, can you repeat that? The false premise seems to be the presumption linking dreaming more closely to the imagination than to perception. Uh, False premise? Being a false premise, so does he feel that's a false premise? Or that's a common... Yeah, I can just paraphrase the sentence for you. Okay, so basically he's saying that it is bullshit when people associate the uh, dreaming with imagining more than experiencing. And that's basically one of the things that this book was really important in my uh, understanding of reality when I was 17 is the idea that when you dream something, it's a lot closer to experiencing. And that's a sentence that's coming like, that's a paragraph that's coming a little bit later. But yeah, basically when you have a dream, let's say that that's why it has such a visceral impact on you when you wake up the next morning and you're just like, like that's the thing that we talked about where it's like, you wake up a morning and you're just in a shitty mood. You don't really know why, but you suspect it might be because you had a really intense dream. Yeah. And so what he's saying is that the reason that that happens is because your experience of a dream is a lot. Well, it's that whole thing of like, first of all, a lot of time, unless you're lucid, you don't even know you're dreaming. So you just think you're experiencing life. But you're experiencing this weird, crazy variation of life where it's responding to your fears and giving you a reaction to that. Anyway, indeed, a series of experiments provides evidence that from the point of view of both dreamer and their brains, and to a lesser extent their bodies, dreaming of doing something is more like actually doing it than imagining it. I, I just wanted to kind of like raise the question... Um... Don't you think that what you imagine is based on experience too? Yeah, but it's not. When you're daydreaming, you still have sensory input. This is like right. being thrown into a sensory deprivation tank. Is, Wait, is but the thing with your thumbs, like I imagine that you had a piece of tape 
on your thumb and then it got stuck to your other thumb? <laughs> oh, no, you totally missed the whole point of... No, I had a feeling in my thumb. I had a feeling in my thumb. Let's say it was like uh, sort of like the muscle spasm that I was having in my eye. Mm-hmm. You know, like let's say my thumb was pulsing and it freaked me out for some reason in my dream. Okay. And then I tried to address it with my other thumb and then I was on my other thumb and then eventually it ended up on my dick. <laughs> you just wanted me to say that <laughs> sentence again. <laughs> and so what that has to do with is at the time I was having anxieties about things that I'm not going to get into, but just anxieties where when that dream, inter- the interpretation of my dream was like, oh yeah, your thumb is a phallus or is, is phallic. I was like, oh, okay. I can see that because I mean, the power of phallic symbology is so strong. <laughs> I think that might be the only thing that's valid in dream analysis. If it looks like a dick, it's probably a dick. <laughs> Stop nodding. I'm talking to you. Be fucking vocal. <laughs> Leaving me out to dry. God damn it. Look, I, I just, I, the only thing I'm going to add is that, like, sometimes there is a connection between what you're sensing while you're dreaming and what's happening in the dream. Like, there have been Oh, no, times, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. That sounded a little, like, exclusionary, like, it never happens that, like, you could have had tape on your thumb. Oh, no, yeah. No, 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 no. I was only say that was that was not an example of like Libertian science. That was an example of like okay, I don't want to completely discredit dream interpretation because when you are having an anxiety in your life about sexual things, right? And then you have a dream, but you don't want to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was just like it was just like dude, it wasn't a good period. <laughs> I was just wasn't getting laid. That's it. Oh my god, mystery fucking dispelled. <laughs> so, but what I'm saying, what he's saying is that let's say you have a traumatic experience in your dream. The it's a lot less like if I told you to imagine being tortured than it is being tortured. And I know that that, you know, like, of course, with the shit that's happening in the world, there are not the physical repercussions and all of that. But experientially, your brain doesn't necessarily understand the difference because your brain is the thing that is telling you all of this sensory information. And so while you're asleep, it may not be able to keep a consistent reality that is that is set right your mind wanders your mind rambles and all of that but its ability like the idea when people say oh pinch yourself to make sure that you're dreaming that's bullshit because in dreams you feel things physically in dreams you have orgasms in dreams you don't necessarily remember that's why when people remember dreams very vividly they describe it as oh it felt so real that's because they just remember more sensory input that their brain is giving them or fabricating than than otherwise and and we'll see how this is true based on the physiological 
uh, data that you can collect from a, uh, 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 from a person. Dreams can produce as great an impact on the dreamer's brain as waking experience. Correspondingly, dreams feel experientially real or more real than real while they last. Our, labor- our laboratory studies have revealed that sexual lucid dreams show physiological changes remarkably similar to those that accompany actual sexual activity. And it says see chapter 4 in the book. And don't worry, we'll cover it because it's a meaty topic. But from these findings, we can see that dream content produces real and substantial effects on our brains and bodies, and that we probably ought to take dreams, our own in particular, more seriously than we do in contemporary Western society. From the very beginning, I had been interested in the possibility, first raised by Charles Tart, of communication from the lucid dream to the outside world while the dream was happening. The problem was, since most of the dreamer's body was is paralyzed during REM sleep, how could the dreamer send such a message? There was one obvious exception to this muscular paralysis, since eye movements are in no way inhibited by REM sleep. And at the time, there was some evidence of correlation between dreamers' observable eye movements and the direction they are looking at in their dreams. In one remarkable example, a subject was awakened from REM sleep after making a series of about two dozen regular horizontal eye movements. He reported that in his dream, he had been watching a ping pong game, and just before being awakened, he had been following a long volley with his dream gaze. So he was, he woke, like they saw this information on the EOG that his eyes had, that the rapid eye movements had been moving half a dozen or two dozen times was it back and forth and then they woke the guy up and they were like what were you doing and he was like oh i was watching a long ping pong volley uh, okay i just uh, are we absolutely sure that they didn't just do like a thousand test runs and then finally somebody dreamt about ping pong no and because it, it worked because no, and we'll get into... makes sense with eyes moving back and forth. Well, this in particular, you're correct. This data of this experience was the inspiration for the research that LaBerge did. Okay. So there was this thing and everybody was sort of dismissing it sort of as like, is that corollary, yeah. right? And so, but then based on that, LaBerge came up with an idea that would have a big impact on onirology. He doesn't say that, but I do, because I think this shit is kind of important. He realized that if he moved his eyes in a pre-established pattern during a lucid dream, he would be able to signal an observer in the real world that he was lucid in his dream. And with that idea, he applied to a PhD program at Stanford University Sleep Laboratory, which was directed by an old friend, Mr. Mr. Doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. William C. Dement. It wasn't easy at first to become lucid, but he would eventually develop mild, mnemonic induction of lucid dreams. And mnemonic comes from mnemonic devices, which is a memory assistance technique where you associate a thing with something else. And you got to remember, he wrote this book in 1958, or, or in 1958, in 1985, and by 1977, he had already had 900 lucid dreams that he recorded. So, like you said, in eight years, nailed it. <laughs> How many uh, of them were about ping pong? 
Well, we'll get into that. I think if you have the power to dream about anything, ping pong is probably not on the top of your list. So he developed this mild technique which allowed him to have lucid dreams on command. By early 1980, word of the work being done at Stanford got around and other lucid dreamers volunteered their skills. That's when LeBurge coined the term oneironauts. How would, you, how would you pronounce that? Onai. Onai? Okay, so then I'm pronouncing it right. That's when LeBurge coined the term oneironauts from the Greek root that means explorers of the inner dream world. The solution to dream reality problem had to await the technological developments of the very recent past of 1985. So it's not very recent past anymore. <laughs> Some progress had been achieved by the psychophysiological approach to dream research, but as long as subjects were non-lucid dreamers, this method continued to have significant limitations. The fact that lucid dreamers know when they are asleep, can remember to perform previously agreed upon actions, and can signal to the waking world makes possible an entirely new approach to dream research. These specially trained oneironauts can carry out all kinds of experimental tasks, functioning both as subjects and experimenters in the dream state. So now we're going to get into the juicy stuff, the science that's exciting, and have some actual answers to your dream queries. So now we're going to get into the juicy stuff, the science that's exciting, and have some actual answers to your dream queries. We're going to start with dream time, which is a section I also like to call why Inception was unwatchable for me. So how fast can we dream a dream and how long do dreams take? Evidence suggests that dreams normally take the same amount of time the actions would take in real life. Such reports appear to contradict the notion of instantaneous dreaming. However, subjective dream duration can be directly and easily measured by using lucid dreamers. Oneironauts are instructed to signal when they become lucid in their dream, and then to estimate an interval of, say, 10 seconds by counting to 10 in their dream. The lucid dreamer signals again to mark the end of the interval, which can then be directly measured on the polygraph record. In our experiments, we found that the average length of these estimated 10-second intervals was 13 seconds, which was also the average estimation of a 10-second interval while the subject was awake. As these experiments indicate, estimated time in dreams seem to vary nearly equal to clock time, at least for lucid dreamers. And so, that movie, do you remember? I remember things about it, but I don't remember time being different. It is all based on this idea of dream time. And so, dream time is slower than world time. Mm, okay. And then, if you have a dream within your dream, then it's even slower and so there's all this like crazy mathematics that just doesn't make sense. And we'll get into why right now. To those who object to this, saying they've had dreams that span a lifetime, LeBurge suggests that this perceived passage of time is accomplished in a similar way as it is in film and theater, through jump cuts, fades to black, Star Wars style clock swipes, and other editing techniques. The evidence of our lucid dream experiments suggests that it takes just as long to dream you are doing something as it does to actually do it. 
There are definite psychophysiological limitations to how vast our brains can process information. This is why we cannot do things instantaneously in our dreams. Our brains need time to dream them. Your brain doesn't all of a sudden become overclocked and then you have like, you perceive time differently. That time perception comes from the fluidity of the dream experience. It's more plausible, <laughs> even, if you're thinking in terms of like, what does your brain actually do? Does it magically tap into this alternate world where time moves ridiculously faster than it does? No, it doesn't. It's just your brain is still your brain and it's actually working harder than it's working right now. And it's still like, it does amazing things. You should just be happy with what your brain is capable of doing when you're dreaming instead of adding all these like crazy things like, oh my God, I was a young man and I was an old man. Yeah, but you didn't experience the whole thing. You had like little vignettes from each different, it was like, uh, that's Inception? Yeah, Inception. Oh, I, that movie makes me furious. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, because of this book. This is how dreams work. Not in the real world, in this movie. Hmm. All right. We undertook an experiment to determine the extent to which lucid dreamers' patterns of breathing were paralleled by changes in their actual patterns of respiration. The dream body obviously has no need to breathe. And in waking life, although we breathe every second, we are, for the most part, unconscious of it. Because we're seldom aware of our breathing while awake, we're seldom aware of it while dreaming. We were interested in the question of whether or not subjects holding their breath in dreams physically do so. Oneironauts carried out a previously agreed upon pattern of breathing whenever we realized we were dreaming. We were to mark with an eye movement signal the beginning and end of a five-second interval in which we would either breathe rapidly or hold our breaths. The relevant polygraph records were given to an independent researcher to see if it was possible to determine whether particular instances were cases of rapid breathing or of breath holding. The researcher was able to correctly identify every instance. We were able to conclude that voluntary control of the mental image of respiration during lucid dreaming is reflected in corresponding changes to actual respiration. That basically means that if you hold your breath while you're dreaming, you actually, your body holds its breath. So that what this suggests is that the paralysis is not entire since you're breathing doesn't really affect whether you walk out into a herd of vicious predators. There, there's no evolutionary need to separate what your lungs do in response to your breathing in your dream. So that's an interesting, like, it reinforces that idea that when you're experiencing something in dreams, it's not like daydreaming. It is experientially a lot more real singing and counting the brain is divided into two cerebral hemispheres and for most people the left hemisphere shows increased activity during language use and analytical thinking while the right shows increased activity during spatial tasks and holistic thinking we decided to compare dreams counting and dream singing activities that are supposed to engage the left and right hemisphere respectively and uh Guess what song he sang? Row your boat <laughs> gently down the stream, something like this. We're going to pretend you're psychic. 
Okay. And that I hadn't already told you that on a previous recording. <laughs> but how disappointing is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Pretty disappointing. That's like, I mean, come on. It's like when you tell a five-year-old, <laughs> think of a song. It's just, I don't know. For someone talking about so much about experience, it seems like. His experience is limited. Do you think that's why he chose it? Because it's so ingrained from an early age that there's no way you could forget it? Yeah, actually, that might be true. Interesting. Yeah, because maybe you don't, you, you'll have a harder time remembering the lyrics, The Stairway to Heaven. Yeah. Which is... Well, you might misremember the lyrics. Yeah. Since the right hemisphere is involved during the singing and the left hemisphere during the counting... We expected to find more alpha in my left hemisphere during singing, and that is exactly what we found. The brain seemed to show the same patterns of selective activation during singing and counting during REM sleep as it did during wakefulness. So, that's basically what we have for this episode. I'm just going to wrap it up there because we're going to get into a little bit more stuff. On the next one, we're going to explore... Yeah, what do you what are your thoughts? Well, I was wondering what it takes to be considered um, lucid dreaming. Like, is it enough just to become <clears throat> aware at some point during the dream that you're dreaming, or do you have to actually take full control of the direction? Lucidity is a matter of become of awareness. It's not it doesn't have to be it, yeah. sustained. In fact, a lot of times, if you're having a lucid dream. The excitement of recognizing that you're dreaming wakes you up right away, but that's still a lucid dream. We can get into some of that in the next episode, but there is definitely a thing. There are techniques that we will cover, and I'll I'll tease them a little bit, but there are ways that you can, during your day, check in and ask yourself, am I dreaming? And there are things that are tried and true that you can look at that... Obviously, since you're dreaming, you're going to create them. (laughs) So if you say, I need to look at a digital watch to check the time, you're probably going to be wearing a digital watch. And that, if you look at a digital watch, it's going to have a bunch of gobbledygook. It's not actually... So your brain has a difficulty recreating some things. Another example would be reading a book. And we've talked about how... I think in the last episode, or the last time we recorded this episode, you talked about how if you, sometimes you can intuit a book, right? If you, if you see a book, you can actually sort of be like, oh, that's what, the, like intuitively know that's what this book is about. That's mm-hmm. what this book is, yeah. is a, it, it deals with. But if you open up that book and you try to read the words, your brain has a very hard time maintaining a consistency in what you're reading. Yeah. So you'll read... That. Yes, you'll read individual words, but stringing a sentence in visual representation is very difficult for your brain to achieve. So you'll just, it'll just be a wandering sentence where it like, you, you, you know, the words won't necessarily amount to a sentence or a thought. Yeah. So, so there are a lot of different little techniques like that where you can just like, like right now, if I wanted to ask myself, am I dreaming? I would look like I would pick up whatever book was around. And if I'm dreaming, a book will be around and I'll look at it and I'll read it with more difficulty than I read my script today. Mm -hmm. 
even though I read my script with difficulty. That you would be aware enough to know that it's difficult to read? I would I would look at it and the words would keep changing in my in front of my face. Okay. So so the sentence would be fluid. The sentence would be as fluid as your experience of a space or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Keeping that idea, I, th- I don't know, I don't know scientifically what it is, but there are certain things that your brain has a hard time representing or understanding when it reinterprets them at, at, in dream state. So those are the cues that you can use. I think that one of the, the more interesting takeaways that I want like people to get from this is the idea that when you are asleep and you wake up, you have been through something. You have experienced something. And whatever you're dealing with in your mood at that time is probably related to that. So waking up on the wrong side of the bed and that kind of shit, like you have not imagined. You have intrinsically experienced those things in a way that while you were experiencing them, you didn't know that you were creating them. So these are illusions that you're creating for yourself. And what lucid dreaming does is help you identify that and make you more present. And we'll get it more into sort of the, you know, this is obviously very, this is about consciousness. And in studying this stuff, you get a little bit more into an understanding of how your brain functions. And so for me at 17, reading this book, like probably cursed me to a life of being an artist. (laughs) Of questioning reality and... Uh, you know, all those uh, Isaiah Berlin notions of like, well, what does this all mean? All of this existential shit that this podcast is basically about. Mm-hmm. You think this book is responsible? For uh, or maybe it was a symptom. Chicken or the egg. Yeah. But it's still, I'm I'm actually going to make a push. I got to put a bunch of things that I have to get taken care of. But I definitely want to maybe start getting into more of this discipline. I think there is something... Because one of the, one of the uh, things involved in recognizing that you're dreaming has a lot to do with dream journaling. And you will... And then this might tie in a little bit to dream interpretation, but it, uh, you will have recurring themes in your dreams. You will have, you may not have necessarily recurring dreams. That's an experience that I don't uh, identify with. For me, the idea of a recurring dream, the closest thing that I have is me grinding my teeth so hard that they all fall out. But I think that might have a physiological Hmm. correlation because if you look at my teeth, I have no canines because I have a bit of an overbite. I still am handsome, but (laughs) I have a bit of an overbite. (laughs) If you can imagine this. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Overbite, no canines. No Uh, canines. Well, the canines are gone because they've ground up against the teeth to fit into that that space. Because even though it looks like I have perfect teeth, I never had braces and I just lucked out. And I ended up having more problems because of that. But... I have that recurring dream of my teeth falling out. I'm 100% sure because I grind the fuck out of them at night. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I don't really have recurring dreams myself, but sometimes I'll have a dream 
that seems really familiar and I won't know if it was related to a previous dream or if it was a recurring dream or if part of that dream was a kind of like weird familiarity. Yeah. If that makes sense. No, definitely. And I think that that's sort of, there's a def, there, there is an intuitive element to dreaming that is why people credit it to Pulitzer stuff. It's you're, you're definitely mulling, you're processing some shit. And you mean Nobel? Nobel. Yeah. Yeah. What did I say? Pulitzer? Pulitzer. Okay. Do I know what the difference between those two is? I'm just posing it as a question. You don't have to answer. You know, you know. <laughs> no, I, I'm not sure. <laughs> but thank you for giving me credit. <laughs> but yeah, I, that you know, it's it, it's a weird fucking world. We can agree. I don't necessarily know how much of it is real. Okay. <laughs> Do we want to continue? <laughs> no, Wait, uh, and and I think that that's a fair thing, right? I think that you know that's definitely an area that men of action don't necessarily have the time to ponder. But yeah, it doesn't feel real. <laughs> Do you think there's anyone who thinks it's not a weird world that we live in? Oh yeah, men of action—they think it's normal. I mean, this might be bigoted on my part towards men of action, but I definitely think that they think everything makes sense. I mean, they're like, okay. Men if of you t- action. Also known as action men. No, action men is Sylvester Stallone. Okay. <laughs> it's all of that uh, I think expendables. there's a good chance he has this outlook. What? Whatever you're about to say. I don't know what I'm about to say, so how do you the know? men of action outlook. I think... There is a crippling uh, effect to to self-awareness and consciousness that there are people in this world that don't suffer with the existential nature of it. Mm -hmm. I think that there are people that are like, oh, this is just how it works. (laughs) Yeah, that would be nice, wouldn't it? I don't know. Are you petty in your workplace? Have you ever, like, I've seen some people do shit at work where I'm just like, oh my God, who the fuck raised you? Like, this is how, and you feel like you've won. And I'm like. Yeah, but they did win, is the thing. Objectively, you yeah. You might feel that way, but. No, objectively, but yeah, no. And I think that that's, that that's the, no, totally. That's the separating piece. That's, it's sort of this like, you won because I don't want to be that guy. Yeah. <laughs> it's a consolation prize. From my standpoint, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. They won. <laughs> and I'm having dreams about my thumbs. Hey guys, if you had fun, feel like you learned something, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe. All of that really helps us. We're at What's My Thesis, at Javier Proenza, and at Seth Lauer on Instagram.